It's so good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in uh, this morning. Wherever you're at, I hope that Jesus is speaking to you, is meeting you. And as we dive into the scriptures together this morning, it's just my joy to have this privilege and opportunity to do that with you. If you do have a Bible at home this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be for the remainder of our time. Isaiah uh, chapter 9 on the second week of Advent, excuse me. And as we're about to dive into Isaiah chapter 9, you know, one of the things about Advent, it is probably especially this season, my favorite time of the year, the anticipation, the longing, the, the desire to, to see Jesus and know Jesus in a deeper way, to celebrate his coming into this world. And I, I think about it, you know, really beginning around daylight savings time every year, because especially when the time changes, it gets dark way sooner than I'd like, and there's this sense of like, I cannot wait for daylight savings to end so we can go back to longer days with more, more daylight, you know, in the air. It's not as bad, actually, growing up in Washington, there was, when daylight savings would hit, it was actually worse because the days were so much shorter, right? And there would be moments, especially if when I would work inside all day, where you would go to work and it's dark, and you'd get off work and it was dark, and you wouldn't literally see the sun for, you know, months, and it was kind of this like, oh my goodness. I'm anticipating and longing for when can we change the clocks back so we can experience more light. You know, and a similar feeling is kind of like that when we're talking about Advent, this anticipation for more light, the anticipation for the light of Jesus to come into our lives and into this world and to celebrate that and to recognize that. And I would venture to say, especially this year in 2020, that longing, that sense for the more, of the, the more of the light of Jesus to come into our lives, that feeling, that anticipation is probably more acute now than ever before. That desire, that hunger, and that's all that really we're, we're going to be talking about this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, this anticipation for more of God's light. You know, we recognize that we're, we're waiting, we're anticipating for more of Jesus to come. We're recognizing that the world is not as it, how it should be. And there's this sense as the song goes, we're waiting, we're waiting for the world to change, if you will. And it's into moments like this that the darkness is tangible and real, where Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. That God often does some of his best work in moments of darkness. As we come to Isaiah chapter 9, we don't have a time to go through the whole backstory of what's happening prior to this. But essentially, Israel, God's people, is in a season and a state of deep darkness and gloom and weariness. Mainly because of their own sin and their own kind of going after their own preferences and idols and their own things. Israel is in a state of darkness. But it is into this season of darkness that Isaiah chapter 9 comes in and says a light is going to shine in the darkness. That's why if you look previously right up above Isaiah chapter 9, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 8 basically really does a good job of summing up the scene of what Isaiah is experiencing in Isaiah chapter 9. It says this, and they will look on the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the moment, this is the, the, the scenario that Isaiah chapter 9 comes into. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, I want us to look at it from this perspective of the gift of God's presence. The gift of God coming into our brokenness, into our darkness. I want to break this down into kind of three little subsections here. The first one being the gift of perspective. In a season of darkness, we need the gift of God's perspective, God's perspective on things in this world. So the first one, perspective, look at me with verse 1. 
but there will be no gloom for her in anguish. Notice how the language is exactly the opposite of the last verse of Isaiah chapter 8. It's just a reversal that's going to happen here. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Isaiah is here almost is like giving sort of like a geography, if you will, of where this is going to take place. And now, for us, it's kind of hard to conceptualize this, but what Isaiah is essentially saying is that it's into the middle of nowhere that God's light is going to be shown. It's into the middle of, Tim Keller uh, commenting on this verse says it's Podunkville, basically. The middle of nowhere, or the outer rim if you're a Star Wars fan. It's just out in the middle of nowhere that God's light is going to break through. Not in the centers of power and prestige down in Jerusalem, where all the, the fancy, smart, well-to-do people are at, where all the, the happenings are, are taking place. No, it's into the middle of nowhere God's light is going to shine. But then notice verse 2, Isaiah continues, the people who walked in darkness. Now, as I read these next few verses, notice the past tense of all these verbs. It's almost as if this is so sure, even though that at the time of this writing, it, these things have not yet happened. Isaiah writes them in the past tense to solidify that God's promises, God's character, God's being is that sure. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as at the joy of harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of Midian, or for the, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I want to focus real quickly here on verse 4. Isaiah mentions this instance, as in the day of Midian, you delivered, you brought rescue. And what's Isaiah doing here? Isaiah is reminding the people of God of this instance that happened probably five or six, at least 700 years prior to this writing here in Isaiah chapter 9 of this instance in Midian. Now, what's he talking about? Well, we have to go back to the book of Judges. The book of Judges chapter 7, there is this instance where Israel was in a moment of crisis, in a moment of trouble, and in another moment of darkness. Well, they're up against this, this foe, the Midianites. And it's this moment where Gideon, who is at the time the leader of God's people, has 22,000 men to stand against the Midianites. And God's like, hold on a second, that's too many. 22,000 is too many. And so God dwindles it down to 10,000. And then Gideon comes back and says, okay, we got 10,000 men, we're ready to go in battle. No, no, that's still too much. And God dwindles it down to 300 men. And it's this moment where Gideon is, and Israel are invited to trust God, that God is going to work in a way that is beyond how human reason would decide to work. That God is going to do things in such a way that are so contrary to our own human reason. Instead of dwelling on and hoping in military might and human strength, God says, no, we're going to trust in me. So that when victory happens, when that moment of triumph occurs, that God's people will say it was the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered us. And that's what's being referenced here in verse 4 when Isaiah is pointing back to Midian. And why is Isaiah doing this? See, in a season of darkness, in a season of gloom, in a season where all it feels like and, see, and seems like is just the vision is blurred and all there is is darkness, Isaiah 
And God, through Isaiah, is inviting the people of God to look back on God's prior faithfulness so that we would be anchored in the present as we anticipate hope in the future. This moment, this invitation to see, remember Israel. Remember how God has been faithful in the past. And then may that shape and change your perspective on the present situation. And think about that for you and I today. In a season where the vision is so blurred at times. Where the, 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 I love this, this picture of gloom in the midst of darkness, right? Not, not because I love gloom, but because it gets at this idea where it can be hard to see. It can be hard to gain clarity. And the perspective that God, I think, is inviting us to in, the, in this text is to see where has God been faithful in the past? Where have been those moments, those seasons, those instances where God has shown his faithfulness? Just like thousands of years ago, Isaiah was inviting God to look, or God's people to look back to the time of Midian. Where perhaps is God inviting you to perhaps look back now? Where has God been faithful? Where has God shown himself? And may that reshape your perspective in this season. You know, for me, there's, there's, a couple ways that this often happens for me, especially in moments like this. There's, been, there's a handful of key passages of scripture that God often brings me back to. And there's a, there's a handful of old key hymns that have just meant so much to me over the years. And it's, it's like whether the hymn gets sung or it comes about or I'm, it's brought to remembrance or that passage of scripture. It takes me back to that moment, that season, that time, whether it was in college or whether it was when we first moved down here in a season of, of kind of a little bit of chaos with the church plant we had, and all these different ways where it brings to mind, no, God, you have been faithful in the past, and you'll continue to be faithful in the future. And that's the first thing, the perspective that I think, the gift of perspective that God wants to bring in seasons like this. The second one, though, God's presence, presence. Now, I want to come back real quickly to verse 2, right? Probably the, one of the more iconic verses of this chapter, writes, Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the people who have dwelt, not just kind of walked like passing through, but these people have dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Notice kind of the language that Isaiah gives. It's not just kind of walking, passing through. No, it's this season of like almost permanence. All throughout scripture, when that word dwelt is used, it's most often associated with Yahweh dwelling with God's people in the tabernacle or the temple. And Isaiah here is saying God's people here, they're dwelling. They're they're stuck. There's almost no way out. They're dwelling in a land of deep darkness. But it's into this moment, what does Isaiah say next? On them. On these kinds of people. People who are stuck in darkness. People that can't not seem to find the light. On them a light has shown. And all throughout scripture, now this is really important, stick with me here. All throughout scripture, God's light is most often associated with God's presence. When God's light breaks through into the darkness, it's a way for the the writers of the scripture to say God's presence is breaking through. And when God's presence is breaking through, so often imagery of light and fire and shining and glory is right there with it. And this is so crucial and so key. This is why 1 John 1 verse 5 says, this is the message we heard and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. That's why this this idea of God's presence, especially in seasons of darkness, is so crucial. And God's presence, friends, is, I would say, the 
indicator, the almost litmus test of what it means to be the people of God, that God is with his people. That's why we just sung that, that beautiful hymn, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. It just means God with us. I think of the story in the book of Exodus where on Mount Sinai, Moses is going back and forth with Yahweh on the mountain. And Yahweh is saying that these people, they're a stiff-necked people. They've just made the golden calf. And I'm not going to go with them into the promised land. And Moses responds and says, if you will not go with us, how will we actually be your people? Is it not in your being with us, in your presence, that we are distinct? Or in the book of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're proclaiming the message of the good news courageously and with boldness, and people are wondering, what in the world is going on? These are uneducated and untrained men. But the text says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that they recognized that they had, quote, been with Jesus. They were marked with the presence of God. They were marked by being with Jesus. And friends, in seasons like this, it is so crucial that we recognize that we serve a God who has come to us, who wants to be with us, and we have this privilege of responding to that and saying, yes, God, we want more of you. We long for more of you. We echo the language of the psalmist, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty. And may that longing be the longing of our heart in this season. You know, kind of Maybe taking this to a little practical level here. Like what does this might look like in, you know, your Monday through Saturday sort of day-to-day routine? You know, I came across this quote where Annie Dillard said, I cannot cause the light, but the most I can do is stand in the path of the beam of light. And what she's getting at there is there's this aspect, there's this idea where we're not the ones that are conjuring up God's presence. No, God has come to us. God comes to us. God is the initiator in all this. And we're invited essentially to receive, to place ourselves in in the posture of, God, I want to receive more of you. Recently, I read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, and I was just really inspired by just the way that God worked through her life in Nazi Germany and and being a part of rescuing the Jewish people and helping them in in the midst of all the craziness during World War II. And at one point where Corey Ten Boom was confined to solitary confinement, there was a moment where in that moment of, of, of her biography, in her story, she wrote about how in the midst of a, a very dark season, both literally and figuratively, she said that she would read the Gospel of John until the angst in her heart went away. That she would just place herself in this position of, God, I'm not going to let go. Just like Jacob in Genesis 32, wrestling with God, saying, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to give up until, God, I I come to know you in a deeper way. See, friends, God has come, Emmanuel, God with us. A light has shone in the darkness. And for us, this coming week, what might that look like to place yourself under the beam of God's presence and say, yes, God, I want to be available. Yes, God, reveal yourself to me. Yes, God, show yourself to me. Open up the scriptures through prayer, through other people that are followers of Jesus. May we cling to Jesus even more tightly in this season. So if the first one was perspective, the second one, presence. The third one, you guessed it, it's going to start with the P, peace. Peace. Look at verse 6 with me. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. Notice the language there. The the language of this is a gift. 
I think one of the, the marks of maturity for the follower of Jesus is to recognize that all of life is a gift. And the greatest gift to be given is the Son of God, Jesus himself. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, it with justice and with righteousness. From this day forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, pay attention to the language. Not only is this son a gift, it is given to us. But notice even that last line of that passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That God is the one doing the work here. And friends, we live in a cultural moment that is all about achievement and trying to do more and be better. To, mesh, to, to, to match up with all of the accolades and the, 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 the way of being in the world where we say, I want to be the best. I have to achieve. I have to get and gain more. It's almost like this hamster wheel of saying, how much more can I get? How can I be a better person? How could I just posture myself so that I might appear to be more successful and gain that extra accolade or gain that reputation? It's what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise. Just this achievement culture, this busy culture, this trying to achieve everything in the world for ourselves. But in the moment like that, God says, no, life is a gift. The son is given to you. You don't have to do anything to earn this gift, but simply receive. And the zeal of the Lord will do this. That God is the impetus behind all this. And our greatest need, we've been given a new identity, a new family, a new future, a new destiny. The son has been given. The child has been born. But look specifically with how Isaiah describes this child. The language here in Isaiah 9, I love this. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Speaking to this idea of the wisdom of God. The need for discernment. I don't know about you, but in a season like this, holy Toledo, the need for discernment and wisdom. God, how do we proceed? How do we move forward? How do we care for our families and our jobs and friends and all these different things with so much that, you know, you're, you're probably tired of hearing the language of this is unprecedented times. But my goodness, how much more do we need wisdom in a moment in a season like this? That Jesus is where the source of wisdom comes. But also Isaiah says that he will be called mighty God. Speaking to the fact that it is upon God's shoulders that he can bear the burden of all of us. That he can bear the weight and the angst and the anxiety and the load that we all feel in this season. That he is mighty God. And it's in the moment where we feel like we're at our end of our rope. And we can barely get out of bed in the morning that God says, no, I am mighty God. I step into that moment and say, no, no, I am near Isaiah also says that he will be called everlasting father, speaking of the tender compassion and care. Not only is God mighty and powerful and strong, but this son has the compassion of a father. The tenderness of the perfect heavenly father come near to us in the moment where we feel all of this brokenness and this angst and this longing. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus having compassion on us. And tenderness towards us. That he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And I don't know about you, in a season like this, the weaknesses have just risen to the surface. And that God comes near in that. But also notice the last sort of the scripture here. The Prince of Peace. 
This is where I kind of want to focus on a little bit here, the, the prince of peace. But notice how this idea and theme of peace gets reiterated in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. That this sense where, that this son who is to be given to us will be called prince of peace. And see, friends, we live in this moment again where, look at God is saying that it's through Jesus that peace is going to come. It's through Jesus that justice is going to come. It's through Jesus that true righteousness is going to come. And there will be no end to this. And it seems like we live in, again in this moment where it's like everyone is searching and longing for peace. Everyone is searching and longing for a sense of justice because we recognize how broken this world is. We recognize how messed up things are in the world. And there's this, all this angst of searching and longing for peace. And in the midst of that, it's not actually creating peace. It's creating more anxiety and frustration because it's what Mark Sayers says is that we're seeking the kingdom without the king. And to relate it to this chapter in particular, we're seeking the peace of the kingdom without the prince of peace. And friends, peace, true peace, only comes when Jesus is at the center. But what about this idea of peace? Let's drill down even deeper in this. Peace, it's a word in English that maybe conjures up things from like the 60s or peace being like the absence of war or something like that. And that's fine to a certain degree. But this word peace in the original language in Hebrew is more robust. It's, it's, a, it's a much larger word than what our English word peace most often conveys. It conveys. It's the word shalom. Shalom. Maybe if you're watching at home, maybe with, with someone with you, say that to, to, to the person with you. Say shalom. Shalom, right? It's this word that is, encapsulates the, the, the fullness, the richness, the depth, the way things are intended to be from Genesis 1 and 2. I have this definition of, of shalom that I came across that really, it's a kind of a longish quote, so hang in with me with this. But there's a point to this. This is Cornelius Plantica. He defines peace as this. Shalom, or peace, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom, or peace, means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitly employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. And this last line in particular, shalom in other words, is the way things ought to be. Peace, shalom in the biblical world worldview, is the way things ought to be. And I don't know about you. I think about I think about the moment that we're living in, in this season of Advent, and it's easy for me to just consider how many things aren't the way they are supposed to be. How many things I would go, that's not how this is supposed to be. Thanksgiving is not supposed to be like this. Church, to a certain degree, is not supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to be standing in an empty room. I came downstairs from my office this morning and passed that long table in the fellowship hall and to see that table empty with no food on it, that is not how it's supposed to be. I'm not able to 
hug you if you come to the outdoor gathering. That is not how it is supposed to be. And we feel this, right? At least I do. But it's, this is where Advent is real. This is where Advent meets us. Jesus meets us in this longing, this desire for the way things are supposed to be. This desire for shalom and wholeness and true peace where things are rightly ordered, where we are in right relationship with our creator, in right relationship with each other, in right relationship with this world, in, and all of it coming together. It's the way things are supposed to be. And friends, we recognize that even in a season where things aren't the way they're supposed to be, that our invitation is to all the more cry out, like I talked about a couple weeks ago, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We need you in this. We need you in these broken places and spaces. And maybe to close as we think about this and think about how might we in the week ahead and in this really hopefully this whole Advent season really step into and not kind of sidestep this, this desire for more, this desire for more of Jesus in our lives, but to face that head on. And recognize in the darkness, in the gloom, in the anguish, Jesus meets us there. That we don't need to hide. Just like Tony brilliantly talked about last week, we don't need to put on the masks. That we can come and say, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we cry out all the more, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. So how, how might this work? Let me just kind of walk us through this a little bit and we'll be done. The first thing I just want to remind us of is that before we get to really anything sort of practical, kind of our response, is to remind ourselves again that God is the one that is doing the heavy lifting, right? All of the verbs, God is the subject of all the verbs in this passage. God is the one that is coming here. God is the one that is giving his son. The zeal of the Lord is doing this, right? So God is the, the impetus behind all this. And we need to recognize this. We're not conjuring God up to do something for us that he's not already done and willing to do for us. So that's important to kind of lay that out on the table. But at the same time, as God is the one who is the, the primary actor here, as God is the one who is initiating all of this, this doesn't mean we just sit there passively and just, oh, go on with life. And just casually scroll through Instagram or check the news and just kind of blindly just kind of let the culture take us wherever we're going to know. There is a response. See, the, 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 the danger is that we just become passive in, 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 in the, the most negative sense of that word. We don't respond to the invitation of God in these moments. But remember, Jesus' words to us in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened. The invitation is to come. And you know what? You don't have to get your act together to come. You don't have to, you know, deal with all your issues before you come. No, it is simply come. It is precisely your weariness that qualifies you to come. It is precisely the burdens that you carry that qualify you to come. Or Psalm 61, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I don't know about you, but feeling this sense of feeling overwhelmed, it's precisely your, your feeling of overwhelmed, overwhelmingness, if that's even a word, is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. And it's in these moments, though, that I think the enemy wants to place, I think, at least two lies in, in our heads. The lie of you can, one, do it on your own, and you don't need to come. Or secondly, the lie that you are actually alone. 
And oftentimes it's one or both of those. You can just do it on your own. You don't need God. You've done it before. Just muster up your own strength. You can do it by yourself. Or the other lie is that you actually are alone. That you have been abandoned in the darkness. That the darkness is actually a sign that God is distant. And these are the lies that we have to be careful of. That the enemy comes and wants to plant those in our path. But it's precisely in that moment. It's precisely in that moment we have an opportunity to say, no, no, no. It's precisely in these moments of anguish and gloom and darkness where we're longing for peace, we're longing for more of God's presence, that God is inviting us to greater dependence on him. Think about the passage. It's a son, it's a child that is given, that God himself is modeling dependence. God is modeling what it looks like to live a life that is dependent. Jesus himself lived this life and invites us to live that dependent life the same. Think how dependent a child is on their parents. That's easy for me to think about. We have our three-month-old Adia, and she can do absolutely nothing but smile and do this cute little laugh, and it just brings so much joy. But everything, we do everything for her, and it's a delight. But there's so much we can learn from a little baby about what it means to be a part of the family of God. Kason or Sienna, they come up to me, and they don't, with no pretense, no, like, let me just eloquently figure out, you know, my bullet points of how I'm going to ask dad or mom for something. They just come. No shame. They jump on the couch when I'm trying to, you know, work or read or whatever. They just come unashamedly into, and, they, and it's so beautiful. It's what, I think there's, we have to get back to the simplicity of what it means to be a child of God, to live this dependent life. And so all I'm saying, this is a long way to just basically say, friends, in the moment of angst and longing for new perspective and the presence of God and the peace that Paul says transcends understanding, the invitation is to simply come. To come in prayer. To come through the scriptures. I think about what Tony was saying last week about having that little candle. I want to kind of echo that and remember that just in those moments of those longings that we have, that those desires that we have, as you light that candle, may that be just a way of saying, God, I, I want your presence. I want more of your peace in my life. And I will encourage you this week, whatever is coming up as you're hearing this, or maybe throughout the week, that you would intentionally take time to come to Jesus with that. That you wouldn't just push that off to the side, but recognize the presence of God has drawn near in this season. As dark as it seems, as dark as it is, God's presence is near. And so to close, my, my prayer, my, my, my desire is that we would all be a people that are longing for more of God's presence in our lives. We would be a people that are longing for more of God's peace in our lives. Because friends, I have no, no other answers other than that, that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is what we're truly longing for. In those moments where it seems like, no, I'm actually longing for this or longing for that. No, the truest, deepest desire of your heart is Jesus. The truest thing about you as a follower of Jesus is that you long for more of Jesus. Your strongest desire in a moment of temptation is not actually your real, truest desire. Oh, God, we long for you. My flesh and my heart, they faint for you. We, as, in, as in a dry and weary land, my soul longs for you, the psalmist says, Psalm 63 may not feel like that at times, but that is the truest desire of our hearts. And that's why Paul prays, I'll close with this, and really it's my prayer for perhaps many of you watching this, 
Paul says in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That you would not be filled with all the things of this world, that you would be filled with all joy and peace in your believing, in your, maybe your little believing that you have. That by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would abound in hope. That that's God's heart for us. As we seek his presence, as we seek his peace, that we would be a people that abound with hope. Filled with joy. Delighting in him. Jesus, we long for more of you. We long that you would come, that you would show yourself to us. God, that you would meet us in the gloom and the anguish and the darkness. And that, God, your presence would just permeate every fiber of our lives. And so we, we pray with Paul, we pray with the psalmist. Our souls long for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, we long for you. And God, may your hope fill us. May we be a people that abound with hope, even in the darkness. We love you, we thank you, we pray these things in your name. Amen.